0: We're looking at ethical dilemmas from a deeper spiritual view, a metaphysical view, uh, getting into some of the otherworldly concepts that are behind the legal discussions of ethical dilemmas in Torah and in uh, Jewish tradition. Okay, so I'll start off. Last week I think we covered like three dilemmas more or less. Um, I'm not sure how many we'll cover tonight, but I'll start off with a nice controversial one. And uh, I'll present it in terms of a story, because really it's a discussion. It's a conversation between two rabbis. One of those rabbis is Lubavitcher Rebbe, and this discussion took place in the Lubavitcher Rebbe's office at 770 Eastern Parkway, Crown Heights when he was visited on the Hebrew date Dalad Tammuz Tufshin Mem that is June 18, 1980 by Rabbi Avram Yaakov Friedman otherwise known as the Sadagura Rebbe Sadagura Rebbe is if you're into Hasidic Mishpachology you know, the, uh, the dynasty of Ruzhin, Rabbi sro Ruzhin, who was one of the great uh, Rebbes of the 19th century, and he was a direct descendant of the Mizritch Magid. Many different dynasties come from him. So the Sadigura Rebbe is descended from the Ruzhin, and he had actually just assumed leadership of his Chassidus the previous year in 1979 and their community. Originally, Russian is in Ukraine, and they uh, were in Central Europe for a while, in, uh, in Austria, but uh, the, this Sadagorah Rebbe that we're speaking about in this story was based in Eretz in in uh, B'nai Brak. So a lot of the discussion that he had with the Rebbe was about the situation in the Land of Israel. So There's a recording of this conversation, by the way. There's an audio recording of the entire conversation um, in Yiddish. But at one point in the conversation, the Sadrugr Rebbe laments that the Israeli doctors have been pushing birth control, family planning. That uh, for whatever reason, for whatever uh, agenda, they've been using their Position as doctors to push this idea of small families, you know, presenting the idea that supposedly that's in the name of in the name of health. And uh, you should just understand the, the context of this discussion. Obviously, from a Torah point of view, or maybe it's not obvious, so I'll state it. From a Torah point of view, you probably may have figured out that big families are a thing. You probably notice religious families are large families. Um, So from a Torah point of view, purposely not having big families is an issue, but also from what we'll call a demographic point of view, if you're talking about in the land of Israel and Jewish uh, population in the land, so it's a little bit funny to tell Jewish people to go out of their way not to have big families. And that's where the conversation basically went. And the Rebbe responded to the Sadr Rebbe and said, by the way, when I say the Rebbe, I mean the Lubavitcher Rebbe, because, first of all, that's my Rebbe, so I don't need to, like, qualify which Rebbe I'm talking about, but when I say the Rebbe, I mean the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe says to the Sadr Rebbe, it's tragic that the government will spend, and the Rebbe said a number, and I don't know where the figure is from, but the Rebbe said $30,000. The government will invest $30,000 to help a family from outside of the land of Israel make Aliyah and get settled in the land of Israel and at the same time they're doing that they're spending money like undercutting themselves by having this campaign where I don't know if it's an official campaign or it's just sort of what the doctors were doing but allocating resources that ultimately are being used to discourage large families. So it's like a little bit of um, counterproductive, and not a little bit counterproductive, very counterproductive. So the Sadr Rebbe said, well, you know, one solution would be that they could increase stipends. I don't know if it was tax credits or, st- or stipends actually giving money, but the idea was to somehow incentivize monetary incentives uh, for children. You know, they, they, in, in the United States government, to some extent, you know, they have child tax credits. Um, and populations, countries that are trying to grow their population, they use economic incentives for people to have, or, or, or the opposite of it. If a country is trying to decrease their population, so they disincentivize large families, and they make it prohibitive. So the Sadat Rebbe says, you know, the solution would be that the government can create monetary incentives to large families. However, he says, there's, there's a big problem with that. And the problem is, and here's the ethical dilemma I want to present to you tonight. The saddul Rebbe says, if the government will give monetary incentives to families for having more children, remember, there are all of these Arab citizens of Israel, and they would also be incentivized, and that would ultimately create demographic issues as far as maintaining the Jewish majority. So, you know, there goes that plan. And the Rebbe says, why is that a problem? And I'm telling you, I listened to the recording, I also read the transcript in Yiddish, but I listened to the recording because it's a surprising conversation. And and I'll tell you why it's surprising. It's surprising because we are used to, I'll, I'll own it, I am used to, the way that most people speak on issues, unfortunately, is party line. And once you know how somebody holds on one issue, you can pretty much predict, down the line, how they're gonna hold on every other issue. So, Sadagor so says, if they're going to give money to people having large families, what are we going to do? It's also going to encourage the Arabs to have more children. And the Rebbe says unflinchingly, well, what would be the problem with that? Why is that a problem? And listen, <laughs> listen to what the Rebbe says. There's a concept. It's actually a verse in Yeshio, in the prophet Isaiah bra'a, it was not created for being void, being empty, meaning the world. Los Shevis Yitzara. To be inhabited, it was created. And that idea is that the world was created to be inhabited. I know there's a discussion about the population bomb and overpopulation and all that stuff. But the Jewish concept is, the world was created to be inhabited. We know that there is a mitzvah, one of the 613 commandments, binding upon Jewish people, which is pru uravu, be fruitful and multiply. According to different ways of counting the mitzvahs, that could even be the first mitzvah, because that's the first mitzvah that was given. It was given to Adam and Eve, and later repeated to Noah. So, we have this duty to populate the world. Now, watch what the Rebbe says. The non-Jews of this world, according to Torah, it's very interesting, and I'm going to explain this because it's, it's unfamiliar to many people, and a lot of people make assumptions about what this means because they think it means what, things that it doesn't mean. So on one hand, Judaism is not a proselytizing religion. There's absolutely no goal in making the world Jewish. It's not considered something to pursue at all. And to the contrary, um, prospective converts are discouraged. They're told, what do you need this for? They're told, what do you need this for? Not as a way of being exclusive or elitist. They're told, what do you need this for? Because quite frankly, I mean, what do you need this for? Like, why do you need, first of all, and this is what the Jewish court tells any prospective convert. Why do you want to join a minority that's being persecuted? Like, what do you need that for? Also, why do you need to take on extra religious obligations? Like, what's wrong if, if you want to go drive to the beach on Saturday and you want to go dig a sandcastle? And once you become Jewish, you're not going to be able to do that. What's wrong if you want to eat some bacon? It's not a terrible thing for a non-Jew. To, it's not, it's, there's nothing wrong with for a non-Jew. To, it's only prohibited for a Jew to do it. So, we tell non Jews, what do you need this for? Why do you want to become Jewish? Don't become Jewish. On the other hand, and I think a lot of people uh, don't understand this or never even heard of the concept, there's something called Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach. means seven, Mitzvahs means mitzvahs, like commandments. B'nai Noach are the children of, of Noah. Now, all human beings are descended from Noah because Noah is the survivor of the flood and his. Descendants are the ones who repopulated the world after the flood. So everyone is descended from Noah. Noah was given seven commandments. How to live. So the entire world is obligated to adhere to seven commandments. Sheva, mitzvah, b'nai, Noach. So on one hand, the Jewish view is that we don't try to get non-Jews to become Jewish and then become obligated in keeping 613 commandments. Like, why should they? On the other hand, there is a belief that we as Jews should encourage, and if we have the ability to do so, um, enforce that the entire world follows the Mitzvot b'nei noyach, the seven Noahide laws, which, as, which, as sometimes that's translated which are mostly ethical principles, but it's not ethical humanism. It's not secular ethics. Uh, The first mitzvah of the seven Noachid mitzvahs is the belief in God and also the prohibition against blaspheming God. So it's based on belief in God, and it's based that these mitzvahs are of divine origin. In fact, not to get uh, too detailed, but technically a non-Jew is supposed to keep the seven mitzvahs of the children of Noah, not because it was given to Noah, but because it was reiterated again at the time of the revelation at Sinai when the 613 commandments were given to the Jewish people. In other words, the revelation at Sinai is what made it binding in our present day. Okay. So the Rebbe says to the Sadrugur Rebbe, they are obligated, and Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach. the Arabs who live in the land of Israel, they are obligated in following the seven Noahide laws. So the Rebbe says, first of all, It's just a general concept that human beings are supposed to be fruitful and multiply. That's not one of the seven Noahide laws, but it's a general concept. The seven Noahide laws, you have to understand also, are broader categories. So, like, for instance, like, don't steal. But under don't steal, there's all types of different subcategories. Don't kidnap, don't embezzle, don't uh, defraud somebody in business. These are subcategories. So, be fruitful and multiply is not one of the specific seven... Noahide laws, but it is certainly in the spirit of the seven Noahide laws, and indeed, be fruitful and multiply was given to Adam, who is the father of all humanity, and again to Noah, who again is the father of all humanity, as we mentioned earlier, the, the survivor of the flood, whose descendants are the basis of all human population. And furthermore, the Rebbe says, they have expressly a commandment not to take a life, not to kill. In the seven Noahide laws, one of the, one of the mitzvahs one of the, is a prohibition against taking a life. And the Rebbe says that if we, the Jewish people, are in a situation where there's a government, meaning the Israeli government, which, by the way, let's say very clearly, is not a religious government. The Israeli government is not a theocracy. It is not run in accordance with, with Jewish law. however, <laughs> This is where it gets a little complicated. Jewish people, even if the government isn't a Jewish-based government, it's not a Torah government, but the people who make up the government, who run the government, are Jews. And Jews are obligated in Torah. And one of the things the Torah obligates a Jew to do is to encourage non-Jews to keep the seven Noahide laws. So the Rebbe says, if we have a situation, like, it's not just like in America, where if you meet somebody and... uh, you know, meet uh, somebody who's not Jewish, and they want to hear about uh, your beliefs, and you can encourage them to keep the seven Noachad laws. That's in America, because you don't have any real authority to encourage or discourage their personal religious practices. All you can do is suggest. The Rebbe says, but in Israel, where the Jewish people are in the government and setting policy that's going to affect non-Jews, so we actually, the Jewish people who are in the government have an obligation, a Torah obligation, not to do anything that could facilitate that a non-Jewish family would abort a pregnancy because thereby we would be causing them to transgress one of their seven laws. So therefore the Rebbe says, if we give incentives to large families in the land of Israel, and non-Jewish families also have big families. We're actually doing a mitzvah. We're actually doing a mitzvah. We're helping those non-Jewish families to keep their seven Noahide laws. Now, Sadaguri Rebbe, if you listen to the recording, it's clear that he's very surprised by this line of thinking. And he speaks about the demographics. What about the demographics? And listen to what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says, look, at the end of the day, we're following God's will. This is Jewish law. Jewish law is that the non-Jews have seven Noahide laws, and we as Jews are supposed to encourage them to do it. And if we have the authority to help them do it, or the flip side of the same coin is we'd be in a position of, responsibility if we were to undermine them doing it, so then we're doing God's will, and therefore, you can tell me from a practical standpoint, it doesn't make sense, but we, we have to follow God's will, and if we follow God's will, then somehow it's going to all work out. <laughs> so, you know, Ben-Gurion was far from a religious Jew. He was part of a very, very, very secular, not only secular, but anti-religious culture from the, that, that group of uh the, 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 the Ashkenazic European cultured left wing that, that that really formed the early government in uh, in Israel. And Even he said that to be a realist in the Middle East, you have to believe in miracles. So from a pragmatic point of view, maybe it would be crazy to do this, to encourage the non-Jewish population to increase and to multiply. But from a Torah point of view, it's the right thing to do. And if you're doing what God wants you to do, Ultimately, how can, you, how can you suffer from that? It can only be a good thing. Now, I, I just want to drive home the point I mentioned earlier that in today's day and age people follow a party line and once you know what they hold on one issue you can pretty much predict how they hold on every other issue because things are very very polarized and they're basically two choices, we have extreme, polarized politics, and, uh, and that's, that's the way, to, unfortunately, the internet has a lot to do with it, with the echo chamber, the internet, the search engine bubble, just taking whatever it is you're already into and reinforcing it, and reinforcing it, and reinforcing it, until it becomes almost like an absurd reductionist view of whatever it is you started with. And I said to you that it's shocking because the is position on this issue is so not what you would have predicted. What I, I want to drive home that point because in that same conversation, and it's not a long conversation, I think it's about an hour. In that same conversation, maybe minutes later, the Sadagura Rebbe, I told you this is 1980, asks the Rebbe about land for peace specifically land from the Six-Day War, from 1967, about using it to negotiate deals with, uh, with other uh, countries, with Arab countries. And that Rebbe says, absolutely, uncategorically, no. There's no such thing as land for peace. It does not bring peace. The Rebbe said, even discussing... The idea of giving away land invites violence. And what's interesting is, and the devil also says there, it, it leads to loss of life, both Jewish and non-Jewish, that even putting it on the table, the idea of negotiating land for peace, ultimately causes loss of life on both sides. So, there's so much nuance and complexity to that point of view. Uh, point of view. First of all, in light of what the Rebbe just said, that the, 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 the Israeli government should basically pay for Arabs to have more babies, and then in the same conversation to say, but land for peace is not even a discussion. But then in the same breath as that to say, and by the way, one of the reasons we're concerned about land for peace is because it creates loss of life. God forbid for Jews and non-Jews. In other words, we're, we're also concerned about non-Jews losing their life. Why should they lose their life? Why should we create a situation that's going to cause a clash, and it's going to cause, and the Rebbe always said, that when you put it on the table, the idea of land for peace, you're actually inviting loss of life on both sides. And that was the Rebbe's position. The Rebbe was very, very, very strong in that position all the years. Which, again, all the more so makes it So surprising what Dedeba said about the incentives for large families. And I just want to point out my, my, really my point here is we are all, I think, really, really locked in to partisan thinking. And we all just basically get to a point where the algorithm learns what side of the political aisle you are on and then just starts reinforcing that more and more and more, or, Sometimes it rage-baits you by showing you what the most extreme, absurd version of the other side is saying, which probably does even more to indoctrinate people than showing them what they already believe. You show what the other side is saying, but you show them the most reductionist, absurd version of the other side. And, and this is polarizing us to the point where we cannot have discussions. And what what happens is we just label each other. And even nowadays, it's crazy. Not only we label each other, we label ourselves. And the beauty of this conversation that the Rebbe is having with the saddul Rebbe is that it shows you that a discussion that's based on Torah defies these categorizations. I had a, a clip, a short, on YouTube where I made a statement that... Torah is not right-wing or left-wing. I said, for example, if you would take the Torah stance on abortion, it would not fit into either the pro-life or the pro-choice point of view. It doesn't fit neatly into either of, the, of those pre-made sides. Anyways, my team who edits my videos, they took that clip, they put it on the on YouTube shorts. I can't tell you how many comments I got from people, were just angry comments. It's not pro-life, but it's not pro-choice. It's neither of them. It's none of the above. It doesn't fit neatly into those categories. Do you want this or do you want this? And the problem is people are so ready to snap. They want to know in half a second, whose side are you on? Which one are you? Who are you? There's an old joke. I'm going to butcher the joke. But a Jew is walking in Belfast in the 80s. And he gets stopped and, uh, by a, a group of uh, young toughs in the middle of the night. And they say, uh, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? I'm not going to try my Belfast accent. but yeah. Are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And the Jew says, I'm Jewish. And they say, Catholic Jewish or Protestant <laughs> Jewish? That's the joke. Okay. It's an old joke. Whatever. You can Google it and see how it's actually told. But it really is today like if you try to explain something that does not fit into the pre-existing default positions, people don't have time for that. That's it. They brand you the enemy. They shut you down. And it makes it impossible for us to learn from each other. So I'm bringing this up, even though I do not relish the fact that when I, put, when I upload this video, by the way, exactly what I'm describing right now is gonna happen. There's gonna be an onslaught of people who are going to decide my position. They're gonna decide exactly what side I'm on on every single other issue in the entire world. And because that's, that's current political discourse. But I just wanna point out to you that the Torah position cannot be predictably categorized as right-wing or left-wing or any of the other categories that we use today. Okay. Really, the truth is that we could have a whole course just on abortion, but I think because I mentioned it and because I got so much outrage on that YouTube short, where people wanted to nail me down. Well, what is it? Which way do you hold? Are you a what do you call it? Catholic Jewish or Protestant Jewish? Which one? Pro-life or pro-choice? So let me let me just give like a five minute background in the most complex and controversial and emotionally charged issue in the world. Five minute background. Okay. So the actual source, the biblical source, in case you're interested, in case you are into the Bible, which we call the Torah, okay. The source for abortion as being a prohibited action is in Brechis Tes Vov, that's Jewish talk, for Genesis 9.6 there, this is Parshas Noach. This is the story of Noah and the flood. And these are the rules. Remember I talked about the seven Noahide laws. So these are the rules that Noah is getting for a civilized world. So it says, A person who sheds the blood of a person. His blood shall be shed. Kibetzela adam because God made man in the image of God. So our sages in the Talmud, Sanhedrin, Nun Zainomad Base fifty-seven B, explain what is that verse? Shefech dam adam ba If you know a little Hebrew, so that preposition ba adam. He who sp- spills the blood of a person, adam really means in a person. That letter base as a preposition, it means in. So if you read the verse really, really literally, it means he who sheds the blood of a person in a person, meaning inside of a person. In other words, causing the loss of a fetus that's being carried inside a mother's womb. That's the scriptural verse for it, according to the Talmud. Okay, so there you see that this is prohibited, and this is considered, this is considered a sinful act. Okay, However, th- so then you're going to simplify. Oh, it's murder. It's murder just like uh, you walk up to somebody on the street and, uh, and murder them. Okay, but then later on, in Shmeis, Chov Aleph, Chov Beis, which, that's Jewish talk for Exodus 21, 22 it discusses it yeah it says v'chi anoshim when men are fighting they're brawling v'nogfu isha hara and they they bump into a pregnant woman Yatsu yelodeha and she loses her pregnancy so in this context, it's speaking about monetary damages. This is not Parshas Mishpatim. Mishpatim literally means uh, civil law. In other words, it's considered a tort, like if you damage somebody's property and you pay for it. So all of a sudden it takes it out of the realm of criminal, and by the way, even using these words, English words, they don't really fit, but it now it doesn't sound like murder, it sounds like monetary damages, it sounds like a civil case. Still prohibited, not saying it's permitted, still prohibited, but certainly not a capital crime, meaning not murder and not punishable by death, which regular murder is punishable by death, when there are witnesses and warnings, and it's with the, the high court and all of the different provisions that were involved. Okay, so all already you see there's nuance here, that this is not your regular murder. Then, on top of it, and again, I'm giving the five-minute rundown over here. There are dispensations. There are dispensations. What, what is the dispensation? And this is, this is fascinating. There is a concept in Jewish law called Reidef. Reidef means a pursuer. Now, in American discourse, I don't know about other countries. I grew up in America. I'm very familiar with that culture. I know that the way that the right and the left fight over this issue is they will often say, well, how come those Second Amendment guys who want to shoot somebody for breaking into their house are the ones who are so upset about abortion? And then, like, vice versa, like, flipping the same argument the other way. So I want to tell you something. According to the Torah, there's something called a reidif. It's called, reidif literally means a pursuer. There's a concept in Torah law that in a very specific case, vigilante justice or extrajudicial justice is permitted, and not only permitted, it becomes a mitzvah, it becomes a moral obligation. That is, if one person is pursuing somebody else to take their life, so we are permitted, to stop the pursuer by any means necessary. If it is determined it could have been done by maiming them, and you went overboard, and you hit them with the bazooka, so you're not allowed to do that. What the punishment is, that's another complex discussion, but you're not supposed to go overboard. Okay, you have to stop the person, but you do whatever you need to stop them. I should also mention, by the way, very interesting, that this law of roidev, applies not only in a case where a person is pursuing another person to take their life, but also if one person is pursuing another person to commit sexual assault. So, if the only way to stop a would-be rapist is by killing them, by vigilantes killing the would-be rapist, that is a mitzvah according to the Torah law. Okay. By the way, standard disclaimers apply. Uh, if wherever you're watching this, your local government does not allow vigilante justice, you're not allowed to do vigilante justice. Yeah, I'm not sure any countries in the world will allow you to actually follow this Torah law. So I'm just letting you know, these are the laws on the books, but, you know, follow your, uh, follow your local uh, laws of your country, your state, your city, and whatever. Don't get in any trouble. The point is, A discussion comes up about a woman who is having a difficult pregnancy and a doctor determines that the woman is going to die because of the pregnancy. Either she's carrying the pregnancy or she's in labor. She's as far along as, you talk about late term, she's as far far along as in labor. If the pregnancy is threatening her life, the fetus is considered a rite Now, I I didn't want to say the baby is considered a rite because not because I'm squeamish, but because, as you see, you're going to see momentarily, there's a point in which it becomes a baby, and, and the law changes. Hold on for one more minute. If the pregnancy is threatening the mother's life, the baby is considered a redife of the mother. And by the way, you're going to say, well, what does the little baby do? The baby's not a redife. It's not, not like some maniac running after someone with a meat cleaver. Okay, well, hold on a second. Who says that a redife has to always have intent? You know, what if somebody's uh, with the runaway train? You know, the runaway train. That uh, Nobody has any evil intent over there, right? But the the fetus is considered a redife, and so its life is subservient to the mother's life to save her life so one is not only allowed to but it is a mitzvah to take the life if necessary obviously this is not something you do uh, unnecessarily but if necessary to take the life of the fetus in order to save the life of the mother however this is why I didn't call a baby before because once the, Why, why do you say, why why don't you say the woman is a rediff of the baby? Because the Torah considers her life full-fledged life, and the fetus is not full-fledged life. So in this case, where one's threatening the other one's life, the fetus's life is subservient to the mother's life. If one of them has to die, God forbid, God forbid it should never come to such a situation, but if one of them has to die, and you cannot save both of them, the fetus is going to be the one who's considered the relative. That's the one whose life has to be taken, if necessary. However, once the baby crowns, once the head emerges from the birth canal, now the baby's considered born. Now it's even, Stephen, it's an even playing field. You cannot say anymore that you, that you take the baby's life to save the mother's life. Okay. At any rate, that was probably longer than five minutes, but that just shows you the complexity of abortion according to the Torah law. Let's totally change the subject to something a little bit less intense. (sighs) Okay, I'll tell you a joke. One time there was a rabbi, a priest, and a minister playing poker, and it was illegal in their town to gamble and the chief of police was cracking down on gambling. And he came into their house, I don't know whose house they are playing at, but they are playing cards for money at the, one of their houses. And the chief of police comes in and he sees them sitting there, the town priest, town rabbi, town minister, and the chief of police is like, oh, I can't believe it, you men of the cloth, I can't believe it, the hypocrisy, you guys are gambling, you know, them cracking down on gambling. And uh, they're, like, all looking all guilty. They're just, you know, they throw the chips under the table and whatever. And uh, trying to all appear like they're not doing anything, but they're caught red-handed. So the chief of police says, Father O'Leary, tell me the truth. Were you guys gambling? Father O'Leary says a silent prayer. Says, "Oh Lord, let me just one one time say this white lie, just one little white lie." He looks at chief police, chief of police, in the eye. Father O'Leary says, "Chief, no, no, I was not gambling, not gambling." So, uh, chief of police turns to the minister. He says, uh, "He says, uh, Pastor Jones, were you gambling?" And he says a little silent prayer. Oh. Lord, let me just say one little white lie, one little white lie, one time, and he looks at chief police in the eye, and uh, Pastor uh, Jones says, "Chief, no, I was not. I was not gambling." Chief police looks at the rabbi, says, "Rabbi Goldstein, were you gambling?" Rabbi Goldstein says, "With who?" With who? With who? Okay. There is a concept in Jewish ethics. Cult, changing the truth because of peace. That joke wasn't an example of it. They were just lying to get off the hook. But I, I needed a joke so as a segue. And okay, what's the source for this? The biblical source. So I'm going to go to Bereshis Yud Ches Yud which again is Jewish talk for uh, Genesis 18, 12, and uh, yeah, if you have your Bible at home, you can look it up there. Okay, so what do we have? Yes, that's right, Abraham and Sarah, that's right. So, this is Parshus Vayero, this is after Avraham, I'm going to use the Jewish name, Avraham's circumcision, and he's 99 years old. And uh, so I'm going to read to you. Sara Bikirba Sara, Sarah, laughed. Bikirba you could translate it as at her insides. Like she thought about her reproductive system and she was like, I'm so old. How's it possible? And she said, After I'm old, I'm going to have this joy of having a child. and my My master, that's how she respectfully referred to her husband, Zokin is old. My husband is old. Very next verse, verse 13, Now Hashem speaks to Abraham and says, Why did Sarah, your wife, laugh, saying, How am I going to give birth when I'm already old? hold on a second the previous verse when Sarah laughed she said he's old my husband is old when Hashem speaks to Avraham to Abraham he says hey your wife said How's she gonna give birth when she is old Va'ani zokanti, and I am old. Being Sada is speaking the first person, referring to herself as being old. So Rashi, who's our foremost commentary, comes along and he breaks it down for us a little bit. And he says, Va'ani Kanti, I am old. Shina ha'kosav, the scripture changes or alters things Mipnei ha because of Shalom, shalom, peace. Sharei hi-amra because we all know she just said, my husband's old, not that she herself is old. And that is a passage in the Talmud, a discussion in Bava Metziah, uh, Dav Pei Zayin, Omad Aleph 87a. One of the famous philosophical discussions ethical dilemmas in philosophy every college kid who took Ethics 101, if that's a department, or Philosophy 101 uh, survey of ethics knows about the famous murderer at the door so Kant, the German Enlightenment philosopher said that Values must be categorical. If something is wrong, it is always wrong. And so his critic said to him, Yeah, really? It's wrong to lie, but if a murderer comes to the door and says, Oh, by the way, Roy Dave, here we have a Roy Dave. <laughs> so a murderer comes to the door and says, Hey, I'm chasing so and so. And he's holding his axe and he says, Where is he? and you know where he is, what are you gonna do? You're gonna be truthful, you're gonna stand on virtue, and you're gonna be honest and say, he's hiding in the back over there, go get him. You're gonna lie. That's what the critics of Kant said, and Kant had a chance for a rebuttal, and he doubled down. Actually does sound like today, like a, a Twitter war. So he doubled down, and he said, heck yeah! I would say that you're, if you're an honest person, you've got to always be honest, and then you're not allowed to lie to the axe murderer. Okay. So what's interesting here is we have this Torah concept of changing the truth because of peace. Where do we see an example, a biblical example of somebody who excelled in this area? because the example we have here from the story of Abraham and Sarah is the Torah itself meaning Hashem himself Torah is Hashem changing the truth or altering the truth but where do we have a person yeah the famous diplomat Aaron Hakohen, the high priest Aaron Aaron brother of Moshe brother of Moses he was famous for this. Yes. So where do we see this? In Bamidbar Choftes. Khof, Numbers twenty twenty nine. So when Aaron passes away, it says, Vayiru kol The entire congregation saw that Aaron had passed away. Vayivku. As and they grieved for Aaron Shleishim Yaim, thirty days. Koil base Yisrael, the entire house of Israel. And Rashi tells us again, Rashi, our foremost commentary, tells us, Koil base Yisrael, the entire house of Israel. Hanashim v'hanashim, the men and the women. Why was he so popular? You know, they do these demographic studies. And they say, you know, Aaron is really popular among men between 40 and 59. That's our demographic. No, 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 Aaron was popular among everybody. Why was he popular among everyone? Because Arain pursued peace. He made peace between people who were litigants or fighting each other uvein ish le'ishtoy, and between a man and his wife. And that's all Rashi says, but Rashi's source is the Rabbi Rebinosan, where it it explains it at length. Rashi is just giving us commentary just to understand the meaning of the Torah verse. He doesn't give us all the information. But if you look at the source that Rashi got it from, which is the Rabbi Rebinosan, so there it explains like this. Arein used to make peace. He was raid of Sholem, right? He pursued peace. And how did he do it? If he would find out two people were fighting, a husband and his wife, or two brothers, or two business partners, or whatever. He would go to one, and he would say, your friend is so ashamed of himself, he wants to apologize to you, but he can't look you in the eye. And he would go to the other, and he would say the same line. Your friend is so ashamed. He really wants to make up with you. He misses you, but he's so ashamed. You be the bigger one. Just go over to him, because he really knows he's wrong, and he wants to be at peace with you. And somehow, he pulled this off without ever getting busted. Or maybe by the time people figured it out, they didn't care anymore. The point is, it worked, and it worked so well that Aaron was... En- enormously popular and beloved so that when he passed away the entire nation was crying by the way, when Moshe Rabbeinu passed away the entire nation was not crying and this is in contradistinction to Moshe Rabbeinu Moshe Rabbeinu was uh, we know Moses is truth and uh, sometimes people don't like the truth teller but Aaron was the diplomat so everybody loved him Okay. so there's a sikhon from the Rebbe. Um, chof of... Which year was it? I gotta remember the year. Chof of is the Rebbe's father's yard type. He would always have a fabrengen on that uh, date. So there's a fabrengen, chof of, where the Rebbe is speaking about this story. And he basically asks a very blunt question, which is, so the greatness of Aaron is that he was a liar? Okay, you want to say it nice. You want to say he was a peace broker, but the way he did it, he, he he played with the truth. Now you want to say that you're allowed to change the truth because of peace. Okay, yeah, but still, this is this is the greatness that he played with truth. So here's what the Rebbe explains, and it's such a beautiful teaching. When we're fighting with each other, that's coming from the ego. The ego operates in a world of limitation. The ego is physical, and it sees everything from a physical perspective, which is limitations and a scarcity of resources. And you know, if, if the, the, the last piece of steak is in your belly, now it can't be in my belly. And everything becomes very d- divisive, because here is me, and there is you, this is my space, that's your space. And we're all sort of in competition with each other. That's a, physical, that's a physical point of view. We're all very much in competition for our scarcity of resources. And we don't like each other because of that. Or we come up with reasons why we don't like each other. That's the ego, which is attached to the body. Or you can say the ego is the personality of the body. In Chassidus, we call it the nefeshabamas, the animalistic soul, which is about survival, on a very physical level. Then there's the neshama, the soul. Soul is godliness, and it's altruistic, it's selfless. The animalistic soul is selfish. It's basically self-perpetuation. That's what it's all about. It's just about keeping itself going. The godly soul is totally self-transcendent just wants to surrender with the one, with the all. And it's never at odds with anybody else. So when Aaron would go over and tell somebody, hey, your friend, he's not fighting with you. He really loves you. He wants to be at peace with you. He wasn't lying. He was actually discussing a deeper truth. He was saying the truth of that person's neshama, that person's soul. In other words, Aaron was saying, What his ego told you when he said, don't let me catch you uh, on my side of the street ever again, that was his ego talking, that was the lie. But the soul is saying he loves you, he wants to be at peace with you, even if he's not in touch with it, even if he himself is not in touch with the truth of his soul. But Aaron would testify to the fact, that's what his soul wants, that's what his soul would say. I'm representing the deeper truth. In other words, I'm not telling you a lie, I'm telling you a truth, a deeper truth. And that's how he would facilitate peace because he would elicit from people the love, the serenity, the depth, the wisdom that they had within in their soul. And that's why when he passed away people were weeping and crying. Not just not just because he was popular and they were gonna miss him, but because he was always the one that could see past your shtick and see your deeper truer self and they were weeping and mourning what they feared was the loss of their true selves because who would ever see and access again their deeper spiritual transcendent self if Aaron wouldn't be there to sort of pull it out eke it out of us it's beautiful teaching beautiful concept okay anyways I got more ethical dilemmas but uh this was, this was part two, I don't know, maybe it'll be a part three, but uh, that's what we got for tonight.